Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you've been studying along with us, and I hope you have, we've worked this year through Romans and we've finished the first eight chapters, and they're very, those first eight chapters are very theological, uh, very um, teachy, if you will. they teach us a lot about salvation and the gospel. And you might think that Paul would jump from chapter 8 right into um, application, practical application. But what we see in Romans is he waits until chapter 12 to give us that everyday practical application. And so in chapters 9 through 11, he does something different. And he begins to talk about God's purpose of election. And these chapters, I was thinking about it this week, and I'm being serious about this. I don't remember in my entire life going to a church service, a revival service, a camp. I don't remember a Wednesday night, a Sunday night, a Sunday morning where I have heard a sermon on Romans chapter 9. And some of you may have that same experience. Some of you probably heard it many times, I know. But I I was thinking about it. I can't remember. Maybe I did, but I just don't remember it. So either my preachers were skipping over it or or whatnot. I just missed it. So I don't know, but we know it's part of God's Word, and we're going to study it because that's what we're doing, right? We're going through books of the Bible, and we're going through Romans. So in some people's eyes, this is a difficult section of Scripture to, to take in. But I want to say this to you. To me, it's not difficult to really understand it. It's more difficult to, I think, accept it. I think there's a difference there, and and maybe there's some parts of it that are difficult to understand, but I think people don't accept some of the teachings here in Romans, sometimes because we have a misunderstanding of God, a misunderstanding of ourselves. Maybe like me, you weren't taught this chapter growing up. And so you don't quite understand what it's talking about. But I would ask you today, as I do every week, to see what the Bible says. And sometimes, if you're like me, I read what the Bible says. And the things I used to think were true, I realize I wasn't quite right about what I thought I was right about. (laughs) It's happened to me many times. I hope you'll listen to this. And, hey, if you have questions, if you've heard our last two sermons in Romans... If you hear these couple of sermons in Romans chapter 9, you probably will have some questions. That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing to read something and think, what does that mean? Or how can I find out more about this? So if you have questions, I, think, I hope you'll think through those things with a healthy curiosity for what God's Word is saying to you. Let me give us some background before we read chapter 9 and the first 13 verses. Uh, some background information. First, We know in Genesis chapter 12, in the Old Testament, God called Abraham to follow him. And God told Abraham, I'm going to make from your people a great people, a great nation. I'm going to bless them, and they're going to be a blessing to all nations. God did that with Abraham. Abraham's son Isaac came along, and he was the son of promise. And then, of course, after that, there was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and they were the, his descendants were the Israelites. And we know that the Israelites were God's people set apart that God would work through, correct? He would work through them, and even Jesus would come from that line of people. And so 
that's kind of the, the background we need to make sure we understand because when we come to chapter 8, he's just told us in chapter 8, all of God's people that God has chosen, foreknown, preordained, all these people that he's preordained come to Christ and he loves them and nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. And so imagine if you're one of Paul's readers and you just read chapter 8 about God's great love that he has for his people, but then you know for a fact that many of those descendants of Jacob, those Israelites, have rejected Jesus, right? Because didn't they even reject him when he came to earth? Weren't there Israelites and and, uh, Jewish people who said, I'm not going to follow Jesus, I'm going to reject him? Weren't they a part of him being crucified? They rejected him. And so if you read this, you might think, has God's plan failed? If God chose these people and set them apart, and yet many of them reject God's son, Jesus Christ, has God's plan failed? And so the next question, the application is, if God's people aren't secure in his love, then how can I be sure I will be secure in his love? How can I hold to Romans chapter 8 when many of the Israelites don't hold to Romans chapter 8? And for these people, that was probably a very stressful question. And that's the question that's going to get answered in Romans chapter 9. If you've found verse 1, say word. Let's do it again. If you found Romans 9, 1, say word. Sounds good. Listen closely as we read the first 13 verses. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, for my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall they be, shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, verse 11, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It has been said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. We'll dive into this text here this morning. and There's a TV show I like, and some of you probably know it and probably enjoy it. Some of you probably think it's silly, but there was a guy on the show. He's a funny character, you know, comedian, funny character. And there's a, there's a part of the show where he's, I don't know if he's in the airport. He's walking through some crowded place. And he looks around, and he goes, ugh, 
there are too many people in this world. We need another plague. And I used to think that, I used to think that was the funniest thing until COVID came along, right? It's like his, his prayer got answered. There's too many people. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever been somewhere crowded and think, where all these people come from? I was in Louisville, Kentucky at a basketball thing last a couple weeks ago. 70 basketball courts under one building, 900 teams, 1,000 college scouts, parents, and all kind of people. And I, I remember thinking to myself, there's too many people in this world. <laughs> there's too many people in here. Where do these people come from? And I'm talking about, by the way, I saw this one lady, Cooper. She was seven foot tall. She made you look short. I was like, that's the tallest lady I've ever seen. But so many people, all kinds of, all shapes and sizes of people. And, but here's why I say that. There are so many people in this world who are intelligent, wise, talented, otherwise lovely people who've never heard the gospel and never trusted in Jesus. Is that true? We may not see that in our area as much, but aren't there parts of this country and this world where they're talented, lovely, intelligent, maybe even wealthy people who've never heard of Jesus or don't put their trust in Jesus? That's true. There are people like that who've never sat in a Bible-preaching church. They don't read the Bible. They don't really have a care or desire for the Bible. Then there are other people that we know and who've, who've heard the gospel and received it, which I hope is all of us. There's other people who've heard the gospel many times and who have rejected it. Have you ever just stopped to think, why is that the case? Why are there people in this world who are lovely people, nice people, talented people, intelligent people, who have never heard the gospel? Why would God allow this to happen that they've never even heard a Bible preacher? Many people, listen, millions or maybe billions have never even heard about Jesus. It's hard for us to kind of comprehend that, isn't it? Why would God allow that to be the case? Then you look out on this world and you see people um, who, and I've known people like this, who maybe hear the gospel just a few times, a few times, and they receive it. They hear a preaching once or twice, and they receive Christ as Savior. And then there are people who it takes years and years of going to church and hearing the gospel, and they finally receive Christ. There are some people who go to church their whole lives and never receive Christ. Isn't that true? I think that's true. Matthew 7 talks about that. Have you ever asked why? All these different people, and some even have the same opportunities, right? I know people, you may know people that grew up in the same house with the same parents, the same opportunities to hear about Jesus. One chose to follow Christ and the other chose not to follow Christ. Why is that the case? Hey, the same thing applies to a church, doesn't it? Every church where there's a big group of people and the gospel is faithfully preached, there are people there who have trusted Jesus and there may also be people there who have not trusted Jesus. With the same opportunities to hear the same preaching, what is the difference? Listen to what I'm about to say. I refuse to believe that I'm a Christian and someone else is not a Christian because I am smarter than someone else. Or I refuse to believe I'm a Christian and someone else is not a Christian because I'm stronger than someone else. Or because I'm more spiritual than someone else. Or because I have a stronger will than someone else. I think that's unbiblical to think that way, to think I'm a Christian because I'm this or I'm that. That's unbiblical. 
it's a prideful thing, and to me, frankly, it's kind of insane to think that. There's so many people in this world, millions, probably billions, smarter than me, stronger-willed than me, morally more pure than me, who are not followers of Jesus. Why? What is the deciding factor for someone who follows Jesus and someone who doesn't? I would love to have a conversation with every one of you this morning, one-on-one, and ask you that question. What is the deciding factor? Why do some people embrace Christ and others reject Him? And your answer to that question, your answer to that question would would tell me a lot, I think, about um, things that you believe. But here, I'll tell you what I believe. The deciding factor when it comes to someone's salvation is that my salvation only came by the plan of God and through the power of God. Period. The Father planned it, the Son accomplished it on the cross and in the empty tomb, and the Holy Spirit applies it to my life. I'm not stronger, I'm not smarter, I'm not more pure than anybody else. I'm only saved by grace through faith. Let me give you four points in this text. You can follow along, I think we'll have the points up here for you. The first point is this, notice Paul's genuine heart for Israel. It says in verse 1, I'm telling you the truth. Verse 2, I have a great heaviness, a great sorrow. From a, just from chapter 8 to chapter 9, he goes from the heights of God's great love for his people, and now a few verses later, he's like, I'm in anguish. I'm in sorrow. Why is he in sorrow? Because many of the people of Israel, which, by the way, that was Paul's lineage as well, many of those people had not followed Jesus. And Paul is heartbroken, grieved over the fact that these people, God's, many of God's, if you will, covenant people, were not following Christ. Did you catch verse 3? Isn't this amazing? For I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. Paul says, in a sense here, I wish I could be lost so that they could be found, in a sense. Now, this is exaggeration. He doesn't want to lose his salvation. He knows he can't lose his salvation. But the point is this, his desire for those people to know Christ is so strong that he's willing to say, I wish I was accursed for them, or cursed for them. What a, what a heart he had for these people. In verses 4 and 5, he tells us all the blessings the Israelites had. The adoption of God, the glory of God, the covenants. They were given the law of God and the, the service of God to perform. They were given the promises of God that I mentioned earlier to Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in verse 5, they were given the greatest gift of all, which is Christ, to come from their own people. And so Paul is going, yes, I, I don't know why these people reject Christ. I don't know why they would choose to reject Christ. And what I see in this first five verses is Paul's heart for the people. Paul had a great passion for souls. Is it possible that lesser things in life didn't bother Paul as much because he spent his time focused on more important things like the souls of men? I read a quote from Spurgeon, which we always quote Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived in many people's opinions. And I think that's true. I read a quote from him. I'm only going to give you half the quote because the first half of the quote would make you mad. And if Spurgeon preached today, I think he would get fired from some some churches for saying what he said in this quote. (laughs) 
but I think it's still true, by the way. But I'm going to give you the end of the quote. Spurgeon said this, Get your soul full of a great grief, and your little griefs will be driven out. It's pretty good, isn't it? If I spend my day concerned about eternal things like my children's salvation and my spouse's spiritual growth and my neighbor's eternity, if I spend my time focused on those big griefs, then the little griefs in my life will not seem as big. I think that's helpful. I pray that God would give us a renewed heart for the lost. We do say that. We do in our church. We say, hey, let's pray for those who are lost. But I would encourage you, if you know someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus, write their name down. Put it in a note in your phone. Pray for them daily. If you truly believe salvation is of the Lord by His plan and by His power, then why would you not pray and ask Him to save your lost loved one? You would. You would pray. Let's make ourselves like Paul, have a heart for people. So in this context, he had this heart for Israel. And so again, like I said earlier, some might say, well, did God fail? Because all of Israel was not saved here. All, many of Israel, of Israel rejected Christ. So let's look at the second point. And we find this in verse 6, and it's very simply this. God's promises, of course, have not failed. Can God fail? Is that possible? He can only fail if he wanted to, right? It's not possible for God. God will not and cannot fail unless for some reason that he just chose to fail, right? He cannot fail. His word doesn't fail. Verse 6, look at it again. It's not as though the word of God has taken none effect or it's not as though the word of God has failed. In case Romans 9 is not enough for you, listen to some other scriptures that tell us that whatever God purposes will come to pass. Listen to Job 42.2. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Listen to Isaiah 46.9 and 10. God says, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. How about Proverbs 21.1? It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and the Lord turns it wherever he will. How about Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11? The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. How about one more from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11? God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Even if it seems like God's purposes are not standing, guess what? God's purpose, his sovereign purposes are always standing. Even if it seems like the world is winning, right? If it seems like the government's not going the way we wish it would go. If it seems like nations are not going the way we wish nations would go. If it seems like our health is not going the way we wish it would go. Maybe it doesn't seem like we're being victorious in life. God's sovereign purpose, according to all these scriptures, Old and New Testament, God's purpose cannot fail and it will not fail. And so... These people ask this question. Are you sure? Are you sure, Paul? Are you sure that chapter 8 is true? Chapter 8, verse 26 and following, are you sure that, that all those who God has foreknew and predestined and called and justified, are you sure that God's plan will stand for those people? 
Are you sure that God will work all things together for their good? Are you sure that, that God's love will never be separated from them? And Paul says clearly, God's word will not fail. What we're going to see is the, the reason for that is God has this sovereign plan in place that, yes, is kind of hard to understand, but we're going to clearly see it in these verses. Point number three, God's election is not based on human birthright or ancestry. Look at the second part of verse 6. Very plainly here it says, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. In other words, just, someone, just because someone is from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and just because someone is from that line does not mean they're automatically a Christian, right? For example, if you, some of you grew up in a Christian home, right? Some of you probably did, and it was a blessing to you, I'm sure. Were you a Christian just because you grew up in that Christian home? No. There came a point in your life where you repented and you believed in Christ. God saved you. And so you see that salvation is not a, a birthright. Another example is just because someone comes to church and sits in a church chair week after week, does that automatically make them a Christian? No. But for Paul's readers, I think to read verse 6 and to hear verse 6, I think that would be a difficult thing for them. They've heard so many stories about the Israelites and how God's worked through them and all the things that God's done. They've probably read those things even for, as, a, as children. Certainly Paul did as a Jew. But, and so they, they probably have concerns, and so he continues to teach them. And he does this by giving them three Old Testament characters that I've already mentioned to you to set it up for you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is evidence. Paul's saying, I'm not making this stuff up. Here's some evidence that not all who are of physical Israel are of spiritual Israel. First, Abraham. We know Abraham, right? His name was Abram. God came to him. And have you read that in, in Genesis? Was Abraham just this God-worshipping amazing person. That's not what we see in Scripture. As a matter of fact, to me, it looks like he was an idol worshiper. And God came and said, I want you to follow me. And what did Abraham do? He followed. He followed. Then he says, not only look at Abraham there in verse 7, but he moves on and talks about Isaac. Why did God, again, choose Isaac? Did Abraham have another son besides Isaac? He did, didn't he? with his servant, maidservant, Hagar, had a son named Ishmael. Why didn't Ishmael get chosen? Because God did not choose Ishmael, God chose Isaac. God came to Abraham and Sarah and said, hey, you're going to have a son. And she's like, what? We're old. Remember, she laughed. We're old. We can't have children. And God said, no, you're going to have a son of promise. His name was Isaac. But as you read this, Isaac and Ishmael may not be a perfect example because they had different mothers. So maybe someone so well, Isaac was blessed because you know, he, had, he had the right mother. He came from the right lineage. But the point of that is to say this. God's election is not based on human ancestry. And that moves us to Jacob and Esau. And that moves us to our fourth point, which is God's election is not based on human merit. Verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. And this talks about here Jacob and Esau, verse 11. 
For the children being not yet born, neither having done good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, this brings the point, this brings the point home, or it should. These people had, I mean, Jacob and Esau, did they have the same opportunities? I mean, they're twins. They're in the same mother at the same time. And this shows us very clearly that God, and that's the only way I can read it, God loved Jacob. In other words, God chose Jacob to be the son of promise. Did Jacob's election here depend on future godliness? You look at verse 11 and you answer that question. Did Jacob's being chosen as the son of promise depend on his future godliness? The answer, of course, is no. The Bible says in verse 11, they had not even been born yet. They had not been born, so they couldn't do any good or evil. It was only because of God's unconditional election of Jacob. A woman once walked up to Charles Spurgeon, who preached these types of things, and said, Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon? She said, I don't understand why God would say he hated Esau. And Spurgeon said, that's not my difficulty, madam. My difficulty is trying to understand why God would love Jacob. That's a pretty good point. Because most of the people I talk to about this verse always want to talk about, why did God not choose Esau? I don't know that I've ever heard anybody ever say to me, except for Spurgeon in this quote, why did God love Jacob? Why did God love anybody? You see, that drives home the point. When God does his plan, when God works his plan, it reminds us that nobody... Not me, not you, not anybody deserves to be loved by God. We deserve eternal condemnation and hell. Yet God has chosen to love us out of his own free grace and free mercy. When you think about these things, when you realize that God's election is not based on your birthright or your ancestry, it's not based on human merit, all you can do is think to myself, why? Just think to yourself, wow, why would God save me? This doctrine of unconditional election brings down any thoughts of pride you might have for your salvation. It shatters pride. It shatters the ability for me to say, you know what, I'm so good. I'm so smart. No wonder I'm a Christian. I know all the right stuff. Or, you know what, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And, you know, I'm, I'm, no wonder I'm a Christian. It shatters all that. To know that if you are a Christian, you're only a Christian because God made you a Christian. It takes away all pride. We sang that hymn today. Cooper, put that hymn back up there, that, uh, How Sweet and Awesome. And I didn't explain it in full to you earlier, but the hymn is really about when Christians are in heaven and we're gathered around the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Christians are there 
um, and, and, and talking maybe with God. Look at the second verse, Forrest Cooper, the second verse there. Look at this. It says, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues. Do you see it? Will that be the question you ask in heaven? Or will you, sit, will you be singing in heaven going, why wasn't that person here? Why isn't that person here? Or will you be sitting there going, why, why am I here? A sinner like me, why was I chosen to be a guest at this supper? Look at the next verse, verse 3 there, Cooper. Why was I made to hear your voice? And enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why were you put in a place where you could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ while at least a couple of billion people in this world will never hear the name of Jesus? Why? I don't know, except that it's God's sovereign plan. But the point for us is this. If God did that for us, what should we be doing for him? How should we see him? How should we serve him? How should we love him? If salvation is of grace from beginning to end, then I must give him my life. Some people hear this type of preaching maybe or read this te- even read this text and they don't really like it. But if you've read this and, and have questions, I think that's awesome. And you should ask those questions and study and, and, and talk to other people who maybe can help you in this, in this. And I'd love to talk with you about it. But if you read this, if you heard this today and you thought to yourself, man, God isn't fair. I would say this. I would say two things. First, we don't want God to be fair. <laughs> if God were fair, we would all spend eternity in hell. We don't want fairness. We want grace. We want mercy. A second thing I would say to you is this. If you think to yourself, as you read this text, God's not fair, you're on the right track. Because as we come back next time and study the rest of chapter 9, you're going to see what he's trying to completely say. I only gave you half the story today. Questions are good. Thoughts are good. Wrestle with this text. If you're a Christian, if you're a growing Christian... There's nothing in the Bible you should be afraid of just studying and reading and and thinking about. Let me go to my conclusion. I've kind of already said similar things, but I thought about this, I don't know, one time a few years ago, and I remember thinking about it and asking a few people about it, but like, have you ever wondered why you were born in America? Have you ever wondered about that? Like, I'm happy that I was born here. I don't know about you. I'm thankful, right? Why weren't we born in a, in a poor Asian country, right? Or the Middle East? Or... You ever thought about that? Do you have an answer why you were born here and not somewhere else? Other than God is sovereign? <laughs> That's the only answer I have. Have you ever thought about this? Why are you the race that you are? Why are you not born some other race? Did you have anything to do with it? It's God's sovereign plan that you were the race you are, the gender you are. It's God's plan. It's not for you to decide, is it? God made you a certain way by his plan. Why are some people born with amazing health and others born with disabilities? Why is that the case? 
it's just God's plan for people's lives. We don't know, right? Some are raised in a Christian home, some are not. Why? It's God's plan. And so I ask you those questions to come down again, like I've already said. Why are some people Christians and some not? And the ultimate deciding factor is God's sovereign plan. Verse 18, we'll see this next time of this chapter. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and God will harden whom he will harden. But I'll say this to us. If you are here this morning and you have a desire to repent of your sin and to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to confess him as Lord and to be a follower of Jesus, guess what? You can do that this morning. If you have that desire to repent and believe, then that desire is God-given if it's sincere. Because repentance and faith are a gift of God. Someone might say, well, I don't have a chance to be saved, or somebody might not have a chance to be saved. If you repent and believe, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. We're going to see it in chapter 10. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But if a person never has a desire to repent, they never had a desire to believe in Christ, and God's not working in them, and until he does, they will not repent and believe. So, let's go back to our initial question. How can I be secure in God's love? If it seems like maybe God hasn't held on to his own people there in Israel, how can it, he hold on to me? The answer is this. God's plan has not failed for Israel, and God's plan will not fail for you. If you're his child, he chose you, he sent Christ to die for you, he rose Christ from the grave for you, and he called you to himself. He justified you, he adopted you into his family, and he will one day glorify you. You're accepted, you're loved, you're secure in him forever, not because of anything you've ever done, but because of his sovereign grace and mercy for you. If you're hearing some of these things for the first time, when I did, my mind was kind of blown. My understanding of God went from he loves me to, wow, he loves me. And I hope you understand how much God loves you. Let's pray.